0: Out of all the ancient Hellenistic schools of philosophy, the most famous today is undoubtedly the Stoics or Stoicism. There are incredibly successful YouTube channels and podcasts dedicated to Stoicism. Uh, A lot of you may have read The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Um, There are books, conferences, and people who use Stoicism as a way to perform better at their corporate job. Indeed, the exposure that many people will have had when it comes to the Stoics is a version that is, let's say, a bit shallow, where certain aspects of Stoic thought is used to, for instance, optimize productivity or gain wealth or worldly success. It's a movement that has today been dubbed broicism. The word stoic, as in a person being stoic, is often used today to describe someone that is emotionally distant, right? that doesn't have any emotions, doesn't feel anything, is simply driven by their rational uh, thinking and not by their emotions. And frankly, a lot of the depictions of stoicism or understandings of stoicism that many people have today would probably make some of the actual ancient stoics turn in their graves. But this is only a part of the story. So, what is the full story? What is Stoicism? Where does it come from? And what are some of its philosophical and maybe religious teachings? Stoicism is a school of philosophy that developed in ancient Greece during the so-called Hellenistic Age. Indeed, Stoicism was probably the most widespread and popular school of philosophy in the Hellenic world right up until the rise of Neoplatonism in the 3rd and 4th centuries, but would of course continue to have an influence even to this very day. It was founded in Athens, that most central of ancient cities for philosophy. Its very name, Stoicism, comes from the Greek term Stoa poikile, which means painted porch and refers to a literal porch that stood right next to the agora or marketplace in Athens. It was here in the middle of the bustling city life that the first Stoics would gather to purposely engage with the public. The founder of Stoicism is often said to be Zeno of Citium. A figure originally from Cyprus, who is said to have studied philosophy under the famous Cynic philosopher Crates, and there are indeed some significant similarities between Stoicism and the Cynics. But Zeno is also said to have studied with other philosophers, and the school that he started was unique and original in very important ways. While Zeno is considered the founder, the fundamental features of the philosophy of course developed over time with his successors. He was first succeeded by a guy called Cleanthes, and then by the figure Chrysippus, who is one of the most significant figures for the formation of classic Stoic doctrines, and is often considered the greatest of all the Stoics in history. Chrysippus lived in Athens just like the other Stoic leaders. Unlike some other traditions that we have discussed, the Stoa was actually a literal school in the sense of a connected group of people with a leader, and Chrysippus was one such significant head of this school. He is said to have written an insane amount of works, over 700 books, in which he presented his interpretations of Zeno's ideas and the basics of Stoicism. It gives me no pleasure to tell you that not a single of these works have survived. We do know of Chrysippus' ideas and significance, though, through references and quotes in other works, and can thus get an idea of his thought. The importance of this guy for stoicism cannot be overstated. He made significant innovations in all kinds of philosophical fields, perhaps above all in logic, and we will have time to get into some of these ideas soon. Now Stoicism is one of these so-called Hellenistic schools of philosophy alongside other major groups like the skeptics of the Platonic Academy and the Epicureans as well as of course the Cynics, Peripatetics and others. And they would frequently engage in polemic and debate with these other schools, especially these skeptics who were their kind of arch enemies. And in order to understand Stoicism, it's helpful to get a grasp of this larger philosophical environment. Indeed, one thing that unified all of these schools was their reverence for the figure of Socrates. The Stoics, the Skeptics, the Cynics, the Epicureans, they all claimed to represent the ideas of Socrates, at least in some sense. The problem was, they all interpreted what those ideas were differently. We know of Socrates and his activities mainly from the discourses of Plato, and those who followed Plato and his academy, the academics, of course looked to Socrates as a fundamental role model. And while the earliest academy was concerned with trying to figure out what the actual doctrines of Plato were, very shortly thereafter, there was a major shift in focus. Instead, the academics seemed to glean from the dialogues the main theme of skepticism. Socrates or Plato wasn't representing an actual doctrine or doctrines to be elucidated, but rather challenging anyone's claim to absolute knowledge. Thus, the Platonic Academy became the school known as the Skeptics, whose main philosophical characteristic is pretty much right in the name. They believe that we can't reach certainty or true knowledge about anything at all in the world. Although there can be different levels of plausibility, at least in some schools or branches of skepticism. This is of course a very short and generalizing presentation, but that's the gist of this school. The Epicureans, a school founded by the figure Epicurus, was hedonistic in nature. They believed that what should be sought in life was pleasure, albeit in moderation. Indeed, another one of the features that all these philosophies touch on or deal with is a kind of goal in life, something called ataraxia, which means something like absence of disturbance or trouble, perhaps loosely translatable to something like contentment. Sometimes it's translated as happiness, but that doesn't quite do it justice. So how does one achieve this state of ataraxia? And connected to this, what is the nature of a good life? What is it that is good at all? Good being defined here as something that is desirable for its own sake. For the Epicureans, the answer was pretty simple. The highest good in life is pleasure. Pleasure is the only thing that is valuable in this world. Since they were materialists, this seemed a pretty obvious conclusion. But it isn't hedonism in the more crude sense. The ideas of Epicurus are actually a lot more nuanced than that. He suggests a kind of ascetic lifestyle as the best option, where true pleasure is the ataraxia, or contentment, that comes with a moderate lifestyle and the pleasures that result from it. The academic skeptics had a different idea. To them, no certain knowledge was available to humans, so we are to suspend judgment of anything we know, realize that we know nothing for certain, and that it is only in this state of mind that ataraxia is reached. For Aristotle and the Peripatetics, the highest good in life is eudaimonia, something more close to well-being or living well in general. So what's the position of the Stoics on this matter? They did not believe that the highest human good was well-being or happiness or health or pleasure or any of these things. Indeed, to the Stoics, all these things were indifferent, without any intrinsic value. The only thing that is truly valuable, the only good in this world, is virtue. Nothing else can bring a person to contentment or quote-unquote happiness, not wealth or physical health or not power or pleasure, only virtue. But what does this mean? How is a Stoic to actually live his or her life? We're given a seemingly clear-cut answer by the second scholar or leader of the Stoics, Cleanthes, when he says that the goal of life, the telos, is quote, living in agreement with nature. To live a life in accordance with nature is a recurring theme in all of Stoic ethics. But you might ask, what does this actually mean then? We'll return to Stoic ethics soon, but it might do as well to get a sort of overview of the the philosophy in general first. So in Stoicism, philosophy is often divided into three main categories or parts. Logic, physics, and ethics. It is the ethical teachings of Stoicism that have become particularly famous today, but the other parts are also equally important to understand in order to get a sort of full picture of this school. To many, logic is the basis from which all philosophy must start. It's a sort of jumping off point for all other aspects of philosophy, right? Um, Today, logic might seem to many people like an obvious thing. Things are logical because they're logical. right? But in philosophy, logic is actually a kind of science. It's a a way of studying, examining the nature of truth, and how we can know what is true. Logic was very important to the Stoics, in some ways as a kind of prerequisite for the other two categories. In one comparison, philosophy is seen as an egg. The shell is logic, the egg white is physics, and the egg yolk is ethics. This hierarchy can vary. For example, Chrysippus seems to rather follow the structure logic as as a shell, ethics as white, and physics as the the yoke, but logic is always the sort of first or outer, the shell in this analogy, right? Now, I am not a logician, so if I actually attempted to do a deep dive into Stoic logic, it would probably turn out not so great what i can do is briefly mention that stoic logic is a very significant thing in the history of philosophy Uh, the stoics developed uh, logic in a way that would become very influential and in particular chrysippus is strongly associated Uh, and seen as the sort of originator of a lot of Stoic logic. Um, Chrysippus, in fact, is sometimes viewed as one of the greatest logicians in all of history. He was truly a genius in many, many ways, and this was one of them. Throughout history, however, the logic of Aristotle has been the most famous and widely used, at least up until the modern period. And the logic of Aristotle and that of the Stoics are different in some fundamental ways. As a very brief summary, Aristotle's logic is a categorical one based on syllogisms. A classic syllogism will be something like, All A equal B, and All B equal C. That must mean that All A also equals C. Or, to replace the letters with actual words, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal. That must mean that Socrates is mortal. Stoic logic is instead based on propositions and their relationship. For instance, a classic Stoic proposition, if it is day, there is light, but it is day, therefore it is light. Chrysippus was, again, a very important figure in this regard. What is it about these propositions that make them true? Some philosophers would argue that a proposition is true as long as the second part isn't, as a matter of fact, false, while the first one is true. So, for example, if I said, if it is day, then I am great at explaining logic. That would be considered true by some philosophers, including Philo of Megara. Because none of those two statements are necessarily false, although you could of course argue about the second part. Chrysippus didn't agree, however. He basically held the idea that a proposition can only be true if the opposite of the consequence, that is the second part, would falsify the first part. You could say, if it is day, then I am bad at explaining logic, and that wouldn't change anything. Whether I am good or bad at explaining logic has no bearing on whether it is day. But if we take a proposition that would be considered true according to Chrysippus, such as the already mentioned classic, if it is day, there is light, then things are different. Because if the second part isn't true, if it is dark, for instance, then the first part can't be true. If that is the case, then that must mean that it is night rather than day. In other words, if it is day, there is light, is a true statement. Chrysippus gives us five argument forms, the first of which is the one that we were already given. If it is day, there is light, but it is day, therefore there is light. The second argument form can actually clarify the point we just made about the relationship between truths in part A and B. This form goes, if it is day, there is light, but there is not light, therefore it is not day. We're not gonna go through all the argument forms or go deeper into this topic now, but these are the basic characteristics of Stoic and Chrysippan logic, which thus differs in some significant ways from Aristotelian logic. Needless to say, the Stoics considered logic to be very important for philosophy, and in some ways as a kind of starting point or prerequisite to go into the other two categories, physics and ethics. The physics of this school is really interesting. First of all, there is no metaphysics in Stoicism. This is because there is literally nothing beyond physics to contemplate. The Stoics, in other words, are materialists. They hold that everything that exists are bodies or matter. Even the human soul and God are ultimately material, physical things. There is no immaterial first cause like in Aristotle, immaterial souls like in Platonism, and certainly no world of forms. At the same time, though, they also posit that there is a kind of active, intelligent principle that rules the universe. The universe, in other words, is kind of divided into two aspects, an active aspect and a passive aspect. Matter, sometimes called prime matter, is the passive principle in the world, but there is an active one too. The world is ordered according to reason and intelligence by a force that they call the logos. We thus once again encounter that... Word, which is often translated as Word, such as in the Gospel of John, where, quotes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word logos means a whole lot more than just our concept of word, though. It's very difficult to translate, but among other things, it encapsulates a kind of principle of reason. Logos, as reason, orders things. It's a faculty of human reason, but also a more kind of universal principle of reason. Especially in Stoicism, where the Logos is the governing intelligence that orders the whole cosmos and is identified with God or Zeus. Indeed, there are some sections of Stoic writings that are quite pious and surprisingly devotional in nature. Quote Most glorious of immortals, mighty God, invoked by many a name, O sovereign King of universal nature, piloting this world in harmony with law, all hail. This pantheistic god of the Stoics is identified with nature itself. It isn't something that stands apart from nature and the world, but permeates all of it in some way. It is, as we said, the active aspect of the world, which is part of all things. But remember, the Stoics are materialists. So this god is not something immaterial present in the world, but also somehow a physical thing. Indeed, it is also often called by the term pneuma, which is often translated as breath or fiery breath. God is a kind of fire. Not literally, of course, but in the sense of being a very subtle kind of matter, similar to fire or breath. It is physical, but somehow permeates all things, being identical to nature itself. All these terms are often used interchangeably by the Stoics. God, nature, logos, the whole, pneuma, to denote the same concept, this monistic or pantheistic idea of God as some kind of unity that, that is, that is, unity that permeates all things. Explaining the view of Chrysippus, Alexander of Aphrodisias wrote that he, quote, "...assumes the whole of substance is unified by a certain pneuma, which extends throughout it and by means of which it is held together and remains together, and by which the whole is in sympathy with itself." a fundamentally monistic worldview, in other words. This divine principle governs all things, a pantheistic god that is reason itself. Thus nature is perfectly and reasonably ordered. Everything happens according to the will or providence of this god or logos, and everything is thus preordained. This also leads to the characteristic Stoic idea of determinism, which we will talk about more later. When we read the Stoic writings, we find that they are often concerned with this idea of how God orders all things according to perfect reason, and that we are to appreciate the perfection of the world, or at least to see everything that happens or changes as indifferent. The logos is after all identical to nature, including our own nature. Human beings are special in this case because we are a creature that has a rational mind. Thus, we are participating in the divine logos in a way. We are, quote, doing God, simply by being creatures with minds. This is why we see in the writings of Marcus Aurelius, for example, that he refers to the divine within. God is within and without. It is everywhere. It is nature itself, and it moves and changes according to the reason of the logos, which is also identical to itself. And this is what it means to, quote, live according to nature to align oneself with the way that nature works, with the divine logos. And this, of course, has significant ethical consequences. Because of this physical outlook, the whole universe can be said to be a single thing. Marcus Aurelius says in the meditations, quote, Think always of the universe as one living creature, comprising one substance and one soul, how all is absorbed into this one consciousness, how a single impulse governs all its actions, how all things collaborate in all that happens, the very web and mesh of it all. This leads very naturally to another key feature of Stoic physics that would be very influential for later developments too, which is the idea of cosmic sympathy or sympathia. This is basically the notion that all things in the universe are interconnected and interdependent on each other. A speck of dust on some planet in a faraway solar system has a direct connection with my thumb, or with you, or with the trees outside. Everything is connected in an almost occult, esoteric way, because, after all, everything is one thing. Don't get me wrong, this interconnectedness is also somehow physical to the Stoics, just as God or the Pneuma is material, even though later figures such as the Neoplatonist would interpret these ideas of sympathia in more metaphysical ways. To the Stoics, reality is an interconnected web where all things are connected to everything else, which also allows them to explain occult things like divination and esoteric reading, which we'll also return to more later. While this idea of sympathia is often traced to the Stoic thinker Posidonius, and later thinkers in particular, and maybe partly as a result of his platonizing tendencies, we can find ideas that approximate it from earlier periods of Stoicism as well. Indeed, the strongly monistic worldview that was part of the Stoas since the very beginning kind of necessitated this in a way. If everything is one thing, and God is identical to that all, then everything must be connected in some way. We even saw a possible example of this in Chrysippus from that earlier quote, where he is said to have held that, quote, "...the whole is in sympathy with itself." This idea of sympathia has been a core feature of Stoicism for most of history, but became perhaps most prominent during what is often called the Middle Stoa, with figures like Posidonius and his colleagues, who are often said to have implemented certain aspects of Platonism into the Stoic worldview. It would later be taken up by figures like Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, as well as by the writers of the Hermetic literature, and would become very influential throughout history in esotericism, mysticism, and philosophy generally. But Stoicism is, of course, a comprehensive philosophy, just like all other ancient philosophies. It wasn't just about theorizing or thinking about all these questions on an intellectual plane or an intellectual sense. It was also about actualizing these ideas in your life and living life according to what, what they saw as, as the true way of looking at the world. Uh, living a good life, in other words. How was the Stoics supposed to um, live or or implement these ideas and this is where we get into the topic of stoic ethics. Indeed stoicism is famous today primarily for its ethical teachings or ethical ideas. Uh, maybe most people have encountered stoicism through all these different uh, youtube channels or podcasts or instagram posts or uh, books maybe that talk about stoicism but these sources often primarily focus on first of all, the later Stoics, the Roman Stoics, and also almost exclusively with ethical teachings and ethical ideas, how to live your life, how to be less anxious, maybe how to get up in the morning, all these kinds of, of, of aspects. And very rarely do they deal with these other equally as important aspects of Stoic doctrine, like, um, like logic and physics. When we talk about Stoicism, scholars often divide it into three distinct phases. First, the early original Stoics in Athens, such as Zeno, Cleanthes, and Chrysippus. This is where the school was born and established its fundamental doctrines. Then there is the Middle Stoa, or Middle Stoicism, including figures like Panatius and Posidonius, which had their center in Rhodes, and among other things, seemed to have implemented certain Platonic ideas into the system. And lastly, there is the late Stoa, sometimes called Roman Stoicism, which is basically when the school migrated to the Roman Empire and with Roman writers. Many scholars also question this simplistic division, but it can be a useful way to start getting an overview of, of the history and the, in these different phases. And without a doubt, it is the Roman Stoics and their ideas that the majority of people are familiar with, Many of us have read the famous works of Seneca, the Discourses of Epictetus, and of course the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. All of these belong to the Roman Stoa, which have some specific characteristics. Among other things, it is often said that the Roman Stoics have a particular focus precisely on ethics. And none of this is surprising and can be pretty easily explained, because indeed it is only the Roman Stoics whose writings have survived to any significant degree. We don't have any full surviving works by the early Stoics or even from the middle Stoa, but we have plenty of stuff from the Romans. So it's only natural that it is these thinkers that are the most famous, and that the characteristic features of their writings are the thing that most people associate with Stoicism as a whole. Even though, of course, Chrysippus deserves all the love that he can get. So what do the Stoics teach in terms of ethics? Ethics. While we've already sort of dipped our toes in it to some degree, the quote attributed to Cleanthes and sometimes to Zeno that one's goal or telos should be to live in accordance with nature is at the core of the Stoic life. We now know a bit more what that nature is. With all our knowledge that we've now gained of Stoic physics in particular, we can now sort of rephrase that sentence to also say to live in accordance with God or with Zeus, to live in accordance with reason or logos, or even to live in accordance with yourself, since all of these are seen as identical statements. The world is logos and is governed and shaped by this logos. We, as humans, are also creatures of logos or reason. And so for us to live in agreement with the logos at large, with the whole, as it is often called, means to align ourselves with the way nature works. Almost to see and approach the world from the perspective of that divine inside, from the perspective of Zeus or God, as it were. The way to achieve this is to pursue the only truly good in this world, virtue. The Stoics were unique compared to other schools in that they considered all other good things in life, such as health, wealth, reputation, and such things, as totally indifferent. None of those things are either good or bad, and none of them, in themselves at least, can lead to human happiness. And neither can they of course harm you or lead to an unhappy life, again, in themselves. Health in itself is neither good or bad and can never lead to happiness, for instance. Only virtue can. And virtue to the Stoics is identified with knowledge, especially knowledge of things as they are, according to the logos of the universe. All forms of virtue are a kind of knowledge. Being a good or kind person, which is a virtue, is a kind of knowledge. It's based on you knowing that it is right to be good according to the reason of the whole. This may sound harsh or weird to you. Why would you not consider health to be a good thing? Does this mean that the Stoics don't care if if, if they are healthy or if they have food to eat? This is a good point, and actually a point that they were uh, very much criticized for by their opponents at the time, like the skeptics. But, as you might expect, the ideas of the Stoics aren't so crude. While there were some early Stoics that went the more extreme way, Chrysippus and basically everyone that followed, basically all the Stoics, instead held to the idea that some indifference such as health or moderate wealth, are preferred indifference. It is preferred by a Stoic to be healthy rather than sick, and they will do their best to avoid getting ill, of course. This is also, in a way, according to nature, to not want to be sick. Or that we all, of course, prefer to have food on the table rather than to starve. But the Stoics also recognize that none of these things, although they are preferred, will ever bring happiness in themselves, and they thus remain indifferent in that sense. It is a somewhat complicated doctrine and many of the ancient critics still didn't buy it, but that's the general idea. Virtue and knowledge are the only thing primarily to be sought, Um, a virtue that focuses also primarily on yourself rather than, so, so your own virtue, so to say, rather than the opinion of others. Those of you who have read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius or the discourses of Epictetus will recognize many of these themes. Constantly, they will remind us to remember death, that death is quickly approaching and can happen at any time. Thus, we are to focus on that which truly matters, living virtuously and not getting caught up in things that ultimately have no value and will disappear. The Stoics encourage a moderate lifestyle, not necessarily a fully ascetic one, but one where worldly pleasures are to be avoided, or at least seeking them out for their own sake is to be avoided, so to say. Quote, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. One often quoted principle of stoicism is a kind of dichotomy of control. There are two kinds of things we can experience in this life. Things we can control and things we can't. If you're troubled by something that you can control, say, for instance, you are sitting in in an uncomfortable position, you can simply do something about it. You can change your position. Or, to take a less trivial example, maybe you have done something unkind to someone and feel anxious about it, in that case you can perhaps apologize to the person in question. On the other hand, there are things in this life that you cannot control. The weather, age, or again, the fact that you are going to die. These things, since we cannot control them, have no use getting upset about because, again, there is nothing we can do about them. Everything is ruled by the providence of God or reason including your approaching death, and to get upset about your own death is useless. A person with virtue, who is aligned with nature, sees his death as just another change, as an inevitable part of the way of nature or of God. To be upset about death is just as irrational as to be upset about the blooming of flowers in the spring or the fact that a larva turns into a beautiful butterfly. It is the same change, the same nature and reason doing what it does, and is simply out of your control. Instead, the virtuous person accepts all things that happen as part of the universal reason, as an expression of the providence of God, gladly leaving this world when it is his time. As Marcus Aurelius beautifully puts it, quote, So one should pass through this tiny fragment of time in tune with nature, and leave it gladly, as an olive might fall when ripe, blessing the earth which bore it, and grateful to the tree which gave it growth. And the same attitude should be used to face all happenings in life, especially those that are out of your control. Not to be phased by things that happen, even though they may be sad or unbeneficial, because they are after all simply the workings of universal reason and the interconnected oneness of all things. Everything is always precisely as it should be. According to the Stoics, no external thing can actually hurt us that is, hurt our soul. Obviously, uh, someone can stab you with a spear and you will be physically hurt, but nothing external can truly affect or hurt our true self, our, our soul, but ourselves. When we are hurt by external things or circumstances, it is not those things themselves that hurt us, but our perception or judgment of those things. Someone can say something really mean to you, but that doesn't really hurt you. Only if you judge that mean thing as hurtful or choose to look at it as such, then it hurts you. But it is only your judgment that does the damage. This is why we find in the Stoic writings an emphasis that we are not to care about what other people think. Fame, reputation, praise, or unconstructive criticism, it doesn't matter. It has no value. It is, again, indifferent. The only thing we should focus on is our own soul, to make sure that we make ourselves beautiful, that we are kind, modest, honest, non-judgmental and all other such virtues. Going back to the idea of control, it is after all only ourselves that we can control. We cannot control what other people think about us, only how we act and behave in life. So all our effort should go towards making sure we are virtuous individuals. Stoic ethics is often associated with this kind of cold, distant, and detached attitude. And it is kind of true, even though it is a bit of a caricature. The Stoics do emphasize a kind of detachment in life—to accept things as they come, since they are the workings of God—and then to be equally happy to let them go once the time comes, and perhaps above all to let go of things that we cannot control. Marcus Aurelius puts it in a brief but very powerful statement: quotes, "Accept humbly, let go easily." Stoicism is thus very much a philosophy of self-control. One is to use one's reason, that faculty of oneself that is divine, after all and align it to the general reason or logos of the whole. And this also means avoiding what the Stoics call passions. Life is full of such passions or emotions, and they are often divided into four general categories. Distress, fear, lust, and delight. Each of these, of course, have subcategories of passions or emotions that should be avoided or controlled. Things like anger, lust, jealousy, sadness, envy, etc. To the Stoics, the passions are essentially misunderstandings, or false attributions of value. They are the results of us falsely concluding that something has goodness or not, when really everything but virtue is, as we said, indifferent. If we feel a great sense of lust, in general or for a specific person, this is because we have falsely attributed value to achieving the aim of our desire, the pleasure of sex. But this pleasure has no intrinsic value. Instead, the Stoic practices self-control. He or she attains knowledge and virtue by understanding the way the world works, the workings of the Logos and his own place in this reality. When they have achieved this knowledge or virtue, they no longer misidentify all these passions with what is good, instead being able to see the the, the big picture, so to say. We don't grieve, at least not incessantly, when someone passes away, because we understand that this is simply the workings of nature – the will and providence of God. Simply another change in a world that is constantly undergoing change. There is no difference in value between a baby being born and an old man dying. It's all the same change, and it is only us that judge them as either good or bad, and suffer as a result of that judgment. When we have self-control and conquer the passions, we can find true contentment, ataraxia, the absence of pain, by living out virtue. Now, this shouldn't be seen as the Stoics being completely cold and emotionless. This is the caricature I mentioned earlier. They don't tell us to not feel emotions, but rather to approach them from a reasoned perspective, to understand them properly with a clear mind and thus experiencing them with moderation, you could say. The Stoics often wrote about feeling joy or pleasure, but to not be sad when it inevitably goes away. That's the key part. This becomes especially potent when we read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, who was, after all, the emperor of Rome during one of the heights of the empire's power. Reading his meditations, we find a person who is surrounded by pleasure in a certain sense, although he often writes from the, kind of, the trenches of Germania in, in wartime, which probably wasn't all that pleasurable. But he often talks about how one can be an emperor, to live in a palace and have access to all these pleasures, maybe even to enjoy them to some degree, but still to be a stoic philosopher, and still to remain a virtuous person. It's all about not letting those passions or pleasures control you, not to attribute value or goodness to these things in themselves, but still being able to live them. You accept joy when it comes, and you equally accept sadness and pain when it arrives, but you don't hold on to any of it when it goes away. Instead, the important part is to practice virtue to be a good person, which, according to Marcus, involves loving children, caring for your people, being generous, and having genuine affection for people in your life. Not some cold, calculating, emotionless robots, as many often imagine the Stoics. This is a very important thing to point out. There is considerable nuance and depth to these ethical ideas, and we shouldn't understand them in too simplistic of a way. Quote, In your fits of anger, have this thought ready to mind that there is nothing manly in being angry, but a gentle calm is more human and therefore more virile. It is the gentle who have strength, sinew, and courage, not the indignant and complaining. The closer to control of emotion, the closer to power. Anger is as much a sign of weakness as is pain. So self-control is obviously very important, to focus on on self-improvement and to take the opportunity we have in this very fleeting moment of our life to focus on that which is actually important, to be a good person, to improve ourselves, to live virtuously. But at the same time, this might sound strange or paradoxical when we consider another key aspect of Stoic thought, which is of course their determinism. Since everything is controlled or governed by God, or pneuma, or logos, and everything is that whole, This also means that everything is precisely as it should be and couldn't have been any other way. It also means that our lives as individuals, our decisions and actions, are also predetermined and beyond our control. Stoicism seems to say that we don't have any free will at all. This is true, but there is more going on here. The Stoics indeed hold that everything is determined by an inevitable line of cause and effect. Every cause necessitates its effect, and everything is predetermined. In other words, everything is fated, according to fate. Not just the outcomes of things, but every detail about how things happen is already determined by the chain of cause and effect that have continued since the beginning. Everything we do is already determined. But the Stoics still very much argue for the importance of moral responsibility and for the idea that our actions are still up to us. How is this possible? Well, the Stoics adopted a position that has come to be called compatibilism, which is very simply put, the idea that the ideas of free will and determinism are compatible with each other. This idea is still popular among philosophers today and have of course been understood in somewhat different ways across history. But the Stoics argue that our actions are indeed determined to a certain degree, certain causes initiate how we will act, but different human beings will still act differently based on their inner condition and state of mind. A certain person will respond to a situation in a certain way because of the way that she is, because of her character, and we can still thus praise her for it, at least if it's a good action, right? Our actions are still up to us, because we still choose how we act. Chrysippus used an interesting comparison to explain this. Here, we are told to imagine someone pushing a cylinder down a slope. The cylinder will roll, whereas if it was some other object, like a rock, it will behave in another way, perhaps bouncing around here and there, or or maybe if you try a cube, it will not roll at all. As Cicero tells Chrysippus' argument, quote, As a person who has pushed a roller forward, has given it a beginning of motion, but has not given it the capacity to roll, so a sense presentation when it impinges on the will, it is true impresses and as it were seals its appearance on the mind, but the act of ascent will be in our power, and as we said in the case of the roller, although given a push from without, as to the rest, will move by its own force and nature. The way we react to a cause is therefore still up to us this honestly perhaps isn't the best argument though it still seems like the the shape of the cylinder or the way that it rolls is still sort of predetermined by well by its shape for example it, it doesn't really um it doesn't solve the, the 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 problem of having both free will or having things being up to us and the strong determinism the point here is that the inner aspect, the inner nature, the nature of the cylinder, is what makes it roll a certain way, even though there was a cause that sort of initiated its movement to begin with. The scholar Dorothea Friede gives another analogy where we imagine someone offering a bribe to a certain person. That person can choose to accept or deny the bribe, and his decision will be determined by what kind of person he is, his inner nature, so to say. In other words, it's still up to him whether or not to accept the bribe, but he wouldn't have done either without the initiating cause of that other person offering the bribe to begin with. She goes on, quote, "...that there is a regular pattern of behavior does not diminish our responsibility. It just brings out a fact that we have come to terms with anyway, that we are preconditioned by our personality. This does not rule out the possibility of improvement." Experience can affect the inner conditions of an individual in such a way that he or she learns to avoid hastiness in his or her reactions to immediate impressions. Therefore, society's reprimands and rewards are not futile. There may be a lasting effect on a person's inner nature. So the Stoics, through this compatibilism, can uphold both determinism and moral responsibility and self-improvement, although this compatibilism has been criticized and questioned by their critics across history, too. These are, thus, some of the key characteristics of the Stoic school of philosophy. We have focused on its three main categories or aspects, logic, physics, and ethics, and in all of these ways and through these categories, uh, this was, of course, very influential and very, very important for the history of philosophy. But another area in which these Stoics have been very influential, and one that may be surprising to some, especially given the fact that they were materialists and associated with this very strong rationalism, is that they have been very influential also in the field of esotericism and in esoteric hermeneutics in particular. Have you ever encountered a mystic or philosopher who will um, read or study a text like the Bible or the Quran or maybe like the old classic epics of Homer, for instance, and argue that what is said on the surface of the text isn't the actual true meaning of the text, or at least that uh, the text has different levels of meanings and hidden meanings and all this stuff? I'm sure you've encountered this before, especially if you follow this channel. And this is what is often referred to as esoteric hermeneutics or esoteric interpretation. This is like, again, many philosophers in history are associated with this kind of attitude and this kind of reading of scripture. And perhaps surprisingly, this whole thing kind of starts with the Stoics. If you remember, the Stoics consider everything to be connected. The whole universe is essentially one thing in which there is a sympathy between all different parts. This also means that everything is determined in a way. There is a necessary causal chain of events. Because of this, a sage who knows where to look can read the world, so to say. This is, in fact, how things like divination works, which the Stoics definitely believed in. We can read the world around us to predict things in the future, Things like the stars or other natural phenomena are like signs that point to a certain thing or a certain outcome. And the same can be said about text. The active part of the world is the logos, and everything is and is determined by that logos. This means that this logos, or truth, expresses itself in different ways. There is, in other words, a perennial truth expressed by the logos throughout history A Stoic truth, of course, but sometimes hidden in obscure language. The Stoics are some of the first thinkers on record to take the old myths about the gods, especially in texts by Homer and Hesiod, and read them esoterically. They believe that the text says one thing on the surface, but really means something else on a deeper level. The stories about the gods and all their escapades actually reveal something deeper about the universe and, of course, about Stoic doctrine, that perennial truth that we talked about. And a true sage can read text like that and extract the true meanings from the surface sentences. This kind of idea and reading of text would, of course, become incredibly influential. For example, with figures like Philo of Alexandria in the 1st century AD, we see philosophers start to apply similar techniques to the Bible, which would have far-reaching consequences for not only Judaism, but the very formation of religions like Christianity and Islam. In other words, Stoicism has been an incredibly important philosophical school. It was, as we said, probably the most widespread and most popular school in the Hellenistic age, until around the time that Neoplatonism arrived, and it basically disappeared pretty quickly thereafter. But even so, its ideas would survive in different forms throughout history. Plotinus and the Neoplatonists took many of the Stoics' ideas and adapted them into their system, such as that of Sympathia, for instance. And even later philosophers like Spinoza are often argued to have been greatly influenced by the Stoics. And when you compare the two, it becomes pretty clear. Spinoza famously believed in a God that was identified or identical with nature. The whole term pantheism was basically coined to explain his philosophy. There is only one substance and that substance is God, identical to the concept of nature. And this is obviously very similar to Stoic ideas about God and nature. Similarly, Spinoza was a determinist just like the Stoics and arguably even a more radical determinist than them. If we visit Spinoza's library in his home in Rheinsberg in the Netherlands, it isn't very surprising that we find several books by the Stoic Seneca in his collection. Even today, Stoicism is relevant for people across the world, not just as an interesting ancient philosophy, but as having influenced modern thought in huge ways. For example, the form of therapy known as Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT for short, is partly based on Stoicism and the ideas of figures like Epictetus. His idea that it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them, which we talked about earlier, forms a part of CBT's approach to mental health, which has helped people worldwide deal with anxiety and depression, and continues to do so. In other words, Stoicism is definitely a key aspect of the intellectual heritage of the world. Since its inception in Athens, with figures like Zeno, Cleanthes, and Chrysippus, it has continued to play an important role in the larger Western world sometimes directly, such as during the Hellenistic Age, or today, and other times indirectly, through its influence on other schools like Neoplatonism. It is a powerful school of thought that offers perspectives on the world and our place in it that were not only very useful to the people of of ancient times, but also to millions of people worldwide today. Hopefully this has been an equally useful, albeit of course very short, introduction to the Stoic school of philosophy and its general characteristics. A school that helps us better understand the context of ancient philosophy and how it has developed over the centuries and millennia. And I will see you next time.